Church, he is risen. Man, we wake up this morning with new lightness in our hearts, with a sense that all that ails us will be made right, that everything is going to be okay, because our king has risen. He is alive. And I wonder, I can't help but wonder, that, you know, if, if uh, you don't believe that, you've got to think that it's just the weirdest thing that, that we can say three simple words, he is risen, and it can evoke the kind of response it invokes from a group of people, right? That's just a little odd that just those simple words. And I, I want you to know, I want you to understand that when we gather here, we gather not to think on just a historic event, but on something that has seismically changed all of world history, that, that it's cataclysmic, the, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is something that we don't actually just celebrate once a year, but every Sunday when we gather, 52 weeks a year, we gather here. You know that, right? We gather here to celebrate the fact that our king is not dead, he's alive. He's risen from the grave. And every moment of every day in between our Sundays, we remember that our king is alive. Now it's good to set apart a day once a year where we recognize the historic fact of Jesus' resurrection and we ponder it and we dwell on it. But I'll tell you, it's, we think about it all the time because it's changed everything for us. And if I can just say that, for those of us who believe, it's hard to fathom life apart from the centrality of the resurrection of Jesus because it's changed everything for us. A few years ago, I was meeting for lunch with a friend and he's a friend who does not believe uh, that Jesus is God He's not a friend who believes, he doesn't really know what he believes about the resurrection. And, you know, as these conversations are want to be, we're having lunch, and we're talking about life and faith and matters of importance, and the, resur- the, the conversation eventually just turned towards the resurrection. I'm sure I turned it towards the resurrection, probably. Uh, and at some point, I just, I mean, I said, James, my friend James, I said, here's my perspective, right? There seems to be pretty good historical evidence that Jesus rose from the dead, Right? I mean, things like the fact that all the religious leaders of the day had to do was produce a body. Right? They had it guarded by a tomb of professional soldiers under threat of death. What are the li- what's the likelihood that a bunch of Yahoo disciples could have just robbed the body from that situation? Right? What's the likelihood that they would go to their grave holding a lie if he wasn't raised? That they would be, they would be killed themselves over the fact that he had risen from the grave, never recanting or denying it, always holding to it under pain of death. I mean, all these things, right? I can't prove that Jesus rose from the dead, but the evidence is strong in its favor. And I said, James, here's the deal. If, if the resurrection happened, then it would seem to argue that we have to listen to what Jesus said. No one else has done this. And if he's done it, then we have to pay attention to what he said. And the thing that he said is that he's God. He said it himself. And if that's the case, I mean, so my friend who I love, what do you, what do, you do with that? What, where does your mind go with that? What, how does your heart wrestle with that? And this conversation has stuck, stuck with me over the years because James's response in that moment was, to, moment was to say, I don't know if Jesus rose from the dead or if he didn't, but to be honest, it's just not relevant to me. It just doesn't matter. And I thought, well, what, what, do you mean, what do you mean it doesn't matter? Like I laid out my best argument, you know? Like, how can it not matter? It has to matter. And he said, it doesn't matter. He said, if I were to summarize James's thinking, it was this. It's like, really what I want, Trent, is I want to be happy, and I want to be a good person, and I want to have purpose in life. Those are three good things, right? 
I said, okay, yeah, I get it. I want to be happy. I want to have purpose. And I want to be a good person. And I just don't see how Jesus rising from the dead has anything to do with those three things. And here's the deal, friends. I mean, if you're a follower of Jesus, you've come today, hopefully, to be encouraged, to be reminded that we have a living hope. That Jesus Christ is the firstborn from the dead, which means that he's not the lastborn from the dead either. To be the firstborn is to be followed by a second and a third and a fourth and a hundredth and a thousandth. That he has accomplished a great victory for us through the cross and in his resurrection. And we've come to celebrate that and to be encouraged. But I also know that for some of you, this is my one shot I get with you every year. And I'm so glad that you're here. And I'm going to take my shot. And my hope, my hope is to leave a pebble in your shoe, as a good friend of mine says. She always says, look, leave a pebble in their shoe, which is to say, like, leave something with them that they have to ponder for longer, that they just can't seem to not pay attention to. And so my hope is to show you something. And here's what I wish. I, I go over that conversation with James all the time. because I wish I had, I had had the thoughtfulness in that moment to make the connection between those three questions. How do I be happy? How do I have purpose? How can I be good to the resurrection of Jesus? Because it has more, the resurrection of Jesus has more to say about those things than you perhaps might think. In fact, it alters the way we think about each one of those three questions. And those are the ones I wanna look at today. So let's, let's try and tackle them if we can, right? So the first one is how can I be happy? Like what does the resurrection of Jesus have to say about how I can be happy? Well, you can, you know, kind of go through your Rolodex or go through your index and see if you think this resonates. I would argue that the general thinking about happiness in our day and age is that happiness is acquired through the combination of, you know, some combination of, of these sorts of things. The accumulation of relationships or good relationships, the accumulation of wealth or security, comfort, power, the accumulation of power, or the gratification of physical desires. I would argue that most of us identify happiness with some combination of those things. One might be stronger than the other, but you can check and see if you would agree with that or disagree with it. And if that's the way as a society we tend to operate as it relates to happiness, as we think about happiness, then the thing that I'm gonna encourage you to recognize is that the resurrection of Jesus actually challenges that notion around happiness. It challenges our definition of happiness and actually completely redefines it. Now let me tell you why or what I mean about that. Here's what the resurrection of Jesus says about happiness. It says that there is no way to be happy in this life without being happy after this life. There is no way to be happy in this life without being happy after this life. Now let me tell you how I get to that conclusion, right? If Jesus' resurrection has occurred, then at the very least, I mean, at, at minimal, at minimum, it means that there is such a thing as life after death. Can we agree on that? If the resurrection has occurred, then there is such a thing as life after death. In other words, the materialist worldview, the naturalist worldview that says we are flesh and bone and blood and a brain, and the day that brain stops working and the heart stops beating, that's it. There's nothing after that. If the resurrection has occurred, we can put to bed that worldview and say, it's just not true. If the resurrection has occurred, there is such a thing as life after death. And if there's such a thing as life after death, then that means two things about happiness. It means first, that happiness after death is more important than happiness before death. Do you understand that? And the reason is because after death is a lot longer than before death, right? So clearly a logical person would say, I will sacrifice happiness in this life in order to be happy in that 
era, in that space, in that time, right? So that's number one. Is that idea? I, I think of it this way. Um, has anyone ever like, gone on a tropical vacation, but you've gone like in the middle of the winter, right? And you've done the little dance when you're getting ready for the airport and you're thinking like, okay, I'm landing in Hawaii and it's going to be really nice. So do I just go ahead and put on the shorts now, even though it's February in Minnesota, Right, and, I, and maybe that's what I need to do because I don't want to be miserable. I want to be happy there. And so I need the shorts and the, Hawaii, the horrible, horrible Hawaiian print shirt. But you know, something about that makes me happy when I land there. And so in order to be happy there, I'm going to have to sacrifice happiness here because I'm going to be miserable getting to the airport, right? So lest we think that that's kind of the idea that like we have to trade happiness here to get happiness there. I'm simply arguing that you should want happiness there, that that should trump the importance of happiness here. But let me take that a step further because here's the second thing that the resurrection of Jesus tells us. It doesn't tell us that we have to be miserable here and sacrifice happiness here in order to be happy there. It tells us we'll never be happy here until we're happy there. That what makes us happy on the other side of the grave is actually also what will make us happy in this life. That's what the resurrection tells us and teaches us. That far from saying, hey, in order to have happiness after life, I'm going to have to give up happiness here. This is what Jesus is talking about. You remember the Sermon on the Mount, and maybe you're unfamiliar with it, but in Matthew chapter 5, in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus says something remarkable. He, he says, he goes into all these blessings, and another way to translate that word blessed is to say happy. So he says, happy Happy is the person who is persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Happy, blessed, happy is the person who is poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Happy is the person who is pure in heart, for they will see God. Now get what Jesus has just done there. What he's done is he said, not happy will be this person. He said, happy what? Is this person Present tense, this person is happy who is persecuted for the sake of righteousness. Why? Because theirs will be the kingdom of heaven. In other words, what he said is there is an inheritance that is so good and so rich for those who believe in the resurrection of Jesus and have trusted in him that it enables them to be happy not just then when they receive that inheritance, but now. And when they center their lives around my teaching, Jesus is saying, they understand what true happiness really is. And it's a serious kind of a happiness, as, as odd as that sounds. It's not a silly, giggly kind of happiness. It's a happiness that goes down and roots itself down deep and says, this is what real happiness looks like. And so, my friends, here's the argument that the resurrection has to make for happiness, if you would think to yourself, well, happiness will be acquired through the accumulation of any of those things I mentioned, what Jesus says is none of those things are actually bad. But what really matters is finding happiness revolving around the happiness you will have on the other side of the grave. That those two things are tied directly and can never be untied. This is why you've been to a thousand movies or read a thousand books where some main character gets everything they ever wanted in life, right? They get the power, they get the money, they get the relationship, they get the whatever the character in the story was looking for. And at the end, what do they say? None of it made me happy. This is why. Because you cannot disconnect happiness in this life from happiness after this life. They will always be tied together. And the reason is the resurrection of Jesus. That's why. 
Now let's look at the second one. Let's look at our second one. Oh, actually, um, there, listen to what 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 32 says about that. Paul says, if the dead are not raised, right? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. Do you see what he's getting at? This is a separate section of that chapter from what George read to us when we were worshiping together. But what Paul is saying is it makes total sense to seek happiness in temporary things if there's nothing after this life. If the resurrection hasn't occurred, then seek happiness in eating and drinking in any earthly thing, in any temporary thing. It makes total sense to do that. But the second the resurrection becomes a historical reality, and you understand this took place, then now you know you can no longer separate those two things. So the inverse is now true. Rather than eat and drink for tomorrow we die, if the resurrection has occurred, let us seek our happiness in the ultimate things of God. Let us seek our happiness in the things that God has designed us for and made us for. A pastor I heard tell a story one time about a a woman who lost her husband in the middle of a Sunday morning service. So it was first service in church and out in the lobby, an elderly man had a heart attack and passed away. And of course his now widow went with him to the hospital. And the pastor heard about it in between services and he's thinking to himself, what do I do? do? Everyone in the church knows this this person. We're devastated. I've just learned this news. Do we just cancel the second service? Do we just stop and pray? What, what do we do? He had to make a tough decision, but in the moment, he had to make it quickly. He decided, no, we'll, we'll continue in our worship. We'll continue forward. And so they continued forward in their worship. And he said, I got up and I got one sentence into the sermon and into the back balcony walks the widow of this man. And I'm just stunned. And in my head, I'm thinking, what are you doing here? Like your, your husband's not been gone for more than 45 minutes. What, what are you doing here? And he, he continued with the sermon and he finished. He said, afterwards she came down and she's in tears and then he's in tears and he hugs her and he just says, I, I, couldn't, I couldn't believe it when I saw you walk in. And she said, I had to be where the word of God was. I had to hear the word of God. I needed a rock to stand on. Why? Because our happiness in this life is connected to our happiness after this life. And there's no separating the two. That's the argument as it pertains to happiness that the resurrection brings to us. Now let's look at the second question, which is what about purpose in life? What about purpose? Where does it come from? Generally, I could probably walk out the doors today and I could survey 100 people on the street and ask them, hey, what what do you think your purpose in life is? And I would get 100 different answers. Would you agree? I mean, generally. But here's the commonality, the common factor of all the thinking around purpose and meaning in life in our society, and it's this. As long as I choose my purpose, then that's the purpose, right? That's why I would get 100 different answers because the common factor to everyone's thinking generally tends to be I self-select my purpose. So that's the link, right? And again, Whatever, you, whatever someone thinks their purpose is, as long as they sort of get to choose it. So the real true purpose then becomes not whatever we think we're stating our purpose is, but our real true purpose becomes our own independence and ability to have personal freedom. So personal freedom becomes the thing that is actually our purpose in life. I will dictate what my life will be and determine its purpose and determine where meaning will come from in it and how I will utilize my time and my resources and so on and so forth. And probably not surprisingly, the resurrection challenges that idea. Challenges our ideas around happiness and tells us we need to redefine them. And it challenges our understanding of purpose. And here's how. See, as we turn to purpose, it highlights something. It highlights that we've actually been operating under a false premise the entire time I've been talking. 
We've been operating under a false premise the entire time I've been talking. And the false premise is this. The resurrection of Jesus is only as valuable as what it can do for me. Now make no mistake, the resurrection does much for us. Yes, church? And much for which we should be glad and be thankful. So the resurrection does do much for us, but the resurrection is not primarily valuable because of what it accomplishes for us. Because the scriptures say this. Here's what the resurrection says about purpose. It says, the resurrection is a claim to power on the part of Jesus. It's a claim to authority, and it's a claim to be able to dictate the purpose of your life and mine, rather than have me dictate it myself. Here's what 1 Corinthians, or sorry, uh, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 19 through 21 says about the resurrection. Paul, praying for the Ephesians, says, I pray that you would know what is the immeasurable greatness of God's power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. Now, do you see what Paul has just said? Because Jesus has been resurrected, he has the name that is above every name, not only in this age and era in which we live, but also in the one to come. In other words, when this world is burned up and rolled up like a scroll and God brings in a new creation, Jesus will still rule and reign over that new creation. There will never be a day where Jesus is not the supreme ruler of all the universe. And the resurrection, friends, is a claim to his power. It's not first and foremost a way of rescuing us, although that is true. It is a claim to authority over us. Whether we recognize it or not, the resurrection says, I alone have risen, I alone am king. All knees shall bow to me. Romans chapter one, verse four says it this way. It says that Jesus was declared to be the son of God according to the Holy Spirit by his resurrection from the dead. In other words, right before that, it says that he was the the king in the line of David. He was the son of David in an earthly sense. But then it turns and it says in a heavenly sense, he was declared to be the son of God in power. Not the son of God in suffering, but the son of God now in power when he rose from the dead. Do you see what we're getting at? The resurrection makes a claim that only Jesus can establish the purpose for your life and the meaning for your life. And all your time spent pursuing any other purpose is time spent on fruitless things because he has all the authority and his will will come to bear. That's what the resurrection claims. Now, I recognize that some of you might be thinking, look, like, I, don't, I don't recognize any claim of authority over me. I don't, I don't recognize Jesus' claim of authority over me. It's interesting that in Romans chapter one there, it doesn't say he became the son of God. He was already the son of God before he was resurrected from the dead, yes? It was already true. He was just declared to be that. In other words, it was proclaimed to the universe, to the world. Hey, the one who is risen, he's the son. 
Whether you recognize it or not before, the resurrection is trying to, it's urging you. The resurrection is begging you to acknowledge and to see what is being declared and claimed for you and over you through this action. It's inviting you to see, perhaps for the first time, the authority of Jesus and the power. We all, at different points, uh, have authorities enacted upon us or operating over us that we don't recognize. I got pulled over and got a ticket this week. It was not a great time. Coming down 15, and I was, I was going 55. I was not speeding. And so I saw the police officer. I saw him sitting there, and I thought to myself, I'm good. I'm not saying I never speed, but I wasn't speeding that day, right? And I'm coming down 15, and all of a sudden, he pulls out behind me. And you know the feeling you get in your stomach, and I'm like thinking to myself, what? Well, I'm, I mean, I'm good. I'm looking at my, my emission stickers are good. My registration and my um, uh, inspection sticker is good. Like, I'm good. Like, what? I was going 55. And so I, I get off here to come to the church. And, of course, when you're the pastor of the church and you get pulled over at the exit for the church, <laughs> you're thinking, like, just don't let anybody drive by, please. <laughs> you know, he's going to pull me out and have me doing this, you know, walk the line. Like, I'm, I'm good, I'm good. So he pulls me over, and the lights come on, and I think, well, that's for the guy in front of me. It can't be for me. And then I just pull over to get out of his way, and he pulls up behind me. I'm thinking, what is going on? And he comes up, and he says, your registration's expired. After the first service, somebody told me that the computer in the cop's car can process 600 license plates a minute. That's how he identified that my registration, there's no sticker on the back of my car, Right? So my registration has expi- had expired in August. <laughs> Whatever. <laughs> you. Don't even act like that hasn't happened. You are a bunch of hypocrites. Because I've seen some of you pulled over. <laughs> and I give you grace as your pastor. I pray for you and I just keep going where I'm going. So, he, you know, he gives me the ticket, and he's warranted to give me the ticket, yes? I deserve a side I mean, I'm thinking to myself, I didn't get anything in the mail. Nothing came that alerted me that my registration was past due. I didn't, there was, there's no sticker on the back of my car anymore that tells me it's past due. I got a sticker for my inspection. I got a sticker for all these other things. I had no knowledge that my, it's just sitting in the glove box, the registration. It's past due. I had no knowledge of it. He was right to give me the ticket. Why? Because the registration was actually past due. It was a claim of authority over me. I had no knowledge of that claim of authority over me. I thought I was good and I was not good. We all have authority that operates over us without our knowledge sometimes. Whether you've acknowledged that Jesus' resurrection means he has authority over you or not, it does mean that. Whether you've acknowledged it or not, it does mean that. So that's the arguments for happiness and purpose. Let's look at this last question of how can I be good? And I love this question because friends like my friend James, he's so sincere. I just, I want to be a good person. And I think he would define that this way. I think most of us would define it this way. And to be a good person means I, I want to be kind to others. I want to help people in need and I want to accept people as they are. I think most people think about goodness as something in that realm, right? A good person is someone who does those three things. And those are good things. But here's the thing that the resurrection says. The resurrection sort of has to, it it tries to wake us up from the reality that that alone is enough. Because what the resurrection says is you have a deeper problem as it relates to goodness than you think you have. And here's why. 
the resurrection, and of course what has to be tied to the resurrection is the death of Jesus, the cross. The cross and the resurrection, they only make sense if we had a really big problem because really big solutions are given for really big problems. And so the problem that we have is it's, I might be able to accomplish my whole life being really nice. I might be able to be kind and accepting of others right where they are. I might be able to do that. I might be able to be a person who is thoughtful, right? That, you may live that out your whole life. That does not mean that at your very heart you are good. The claim of the resurrection is that none of us is good. That our, our problem was so deep It was so steeped within us, our lack of a kind of goodness that God could look on and say, that measures up because it mirrors and reflects and equals my goodness because that's the kind of goodness you need, the kind of goodness that equals God's goodness. He says, you could never never have that. And the resurrection is crying out for us to see it because the resurrection only makes sense in light of the fact that we had a really big problem that needed to be solved by a really big solution. You with me? That's the claim the resurrection is making, is that you can never be good enough. But here's the other thing the resurrection does that's so rich. It doesn't just say you have a really big problem. It says here's your really big solution. Here it is. The resurrection is the guarantee that Jesus, not being dead but alive, can do a miraculous thing. And that miraculous thing, after the miraculous thing of being raised from the grave, is to be able to give you his very goodness and put it in your heart. Plant it inside of you. He can do that because he's alive. And if he can be raised from the dead, then surely he can take my dead soul, my unrighteousness, my uncleanness, he can take all that upon himself and he can give me his goodness. And I never have to doubt whether or not that can actually transpire or take place because he is risen, church. He is risen. My hope is that you'll sit with that If you're a follower of Jesus, the reality is you don't always connect your happiness in this life, your goodness, and your purpose to the resurrection. You wander off, as do I, and seek it in other things. And the resurrection calls you back today. And it says, come and find your purpose, your meaning, your goodness. Come and find your happiness all in me. There is no other place. Don't wander any longer. My friends, who I said, I get, I get one shot with you, perhaps. I'll invite you. Come, let me have another shot. I'll, I'll take as many as you want to give me. Come on back. But I hope this sits with you. You really need to ponder the reality of the resurrection. If it's true, it's seismic. And if it's seismic, it impacts you as well as it impacts me. Our hope is that you wrestle with that today. Hear it again. It is hope and joy and peace. Let's pray together, and then we'll worship the Lord. Lord Jesus, you are our king, and we thank you that the resurrection is a claim to have authority over us, and we gladly bow the knee to you. And I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would come and take your word now and plant it in our hearts, that you'd cause it to bear fruit in us, that it would be like that pebble in our shoe that we just couldn't stop thinking about, that we'd have to wrestle with it. We pray, Lord, that you'd capture more of our hearts. Bring us to a place of surrender before you. I pray specifically for my friends who do not believe in you, that you and your love and mercy would win their hearts. We know that's a work of your spirit. We know it's not just a work of one person's words. 
And so we pray, Holy Spirit, that you would do it. We thank you, Father, that you have said it's your kindness. It's your kindness that leads us to repentance. And we thank you for it. We thank you for that kindness displayed for us first in the cross and the resurrection. We celebrate our risen king today. Receive our praises, Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. We'll close our time together by singing to the Lord. So why don't you stand with me and let's celebrate.